This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. What do you do when you realise you're too big for your own country? That's the challenge facing the largest pension fund manager down under, Australian Super. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Anthony Curry, Associate Editor with Reuters Breaking Views, coming to you from Melbourne in Australia. Our guest this week is Paul Schroeder, Chief Executive of Australian Super. He took charge of the local investing behemoth just under a year ago. It manages around 182 billion US dollars, which makes it a dominant player both in public investing in Australia as well as increasingly in the private markets. Oz Super, after all, was part of the consortium that last year bought Sydney Airport for around 17 billion US dollars. I sat down with Paul for a Reuters Newsmaker event where he outlined his strategy for growing Oz Super, mostly by expanding abroad and into private markets. We also, of course, dug into inflation, rate hikes, and what role sustainability plays in investing. Good afternoon from Melbourne. Good morning to all of you joining from Europe and an especial welcome to anyone burning the midnight oil over in the Americas. I'm Anthony Curry. I'm one of the editors of Breaking Views, which for the uninitiated is Reuters Financial Commentary Unit. And with me for today's newsmaker is Paul Schroeder, Chief Executive of Australian Super, which is the country's largest pension fund manager. Thanks for joining us today, Paul. Thanks, Anthony. So we're going to dive into a great range of topics today, uh, from inflation to industry consolidation, from overseas expansion to climate and sustainability. But the grilling doesn't just have to come from me. Uh, Anyone in our virtual audience is welcome to type a question into the box on your screens at any time, and it will then come through to me. So, Paul, uh, let's start off uh, with some, I suppose, rather obvious stuff. You're coming up on your first anniversary as chief executive. and Before that, you were chief risk officer. And I suppose it's probably an understatement to say that uh, being chief risk officer was Probably pretty good training for what's happened in the first few months of, of your role as chief executive. I mean, calling it an event for you would be an understatement. We've had what? Well, let's just go through the list. Inflation, rapidly rising interest rates for the first time in years, energy crises around the world, more supply chain problems, Ukraine war, a new Australian uh, government. I could go on. Um, I'm missing out tensions with China in recent weeks, just to make it even more tricky for you. Now, not all of them, but many of these present a lot of tough challenges for investors. And that's reflected, I think, in, in all Super's returns for the financial year to the end of June. I mean, by no means you hit the worst of your peers. But it was one of the worst results for several years for you, I think, since the financial crisis, uh, with a sort of just under 3%, uh, minus, minus 3% return. Um, and you're also warning of you know, returns not being as good in the medium term and of a potential for an economic slowdown. So just bring us up to speed. That was six, six weeks ago or so. Where do you stand now? Has it got worse? Do you see it as the same? Do you think it's a bit better than it was back then? Well, well, Anthony, one of the most sort of reassuring things is that investing is always about risk. 
right? So we're always thinking about risk and different combinations of risk. And you've just described a great many, and, and some of them are crises. And, and I've heard the phrase poly crises as well. So you are always investing um, for compensation for risk. And you're also always thinking about the future. So there's just that's the way I frame that kind of the trauma of all of those things. Our job is to invest for the long term for people's retirement incomes and to work to look through those and to establish the ways to make money um, at every one of those points. So you're, you're right. Um, we did return a negative 2.73 for the year, 75 bips ahead of the median. Um, but over the 10 years, 9.3. And that's the very important number for us, Anthony. I'm happy to talk a bit more about what we see ahead. But if you just look back at 9.3, if somebody had have invested $50,000 in 2001, it's worth 223500 in 2021. So that's a very important piece of uh, framing and not to say that past performance is a reliable indicator of future performance, but but that's how we have to that's how we have to think about it. That's how we have to to look at it. If I think about the specific risks that you talked about, um, well, some of them are getting better and some of them are getting worse. Um, so yes. if you look at, if you look at COVID, um, you know markets came off thirty three percent in thirty six days, and it was a very sharp V. So we dropped in and we came out. And really the coming out of that kind of bear situation was that the world got more comfortable about, well, first got more comfortable about the illness and also got more comfortable about the prospects of the vaccine and other things. And if you think about it, every time there's a bear, the bear, the bear goes away when the world says, oh, that problem now looks like it's solving itself. So today's bear is clearly inflation and that's what everybody's worrying about. And so then people... They're thinking about that. If, if you think about um, geopolitics and the long-run security situation, I, I think people are, are rightly worried about the global security settings. I think they're rightly worried about energy security. I think they're rightly worried about food security. And so this idea of security in all of its elements is, is real and, and present. Um, the environment and the planet that we operate on is 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 real and and present, COVID seems to be receding. There's a couple of signs about inflation. Um, some of them are a little contradictory, but but um, if I think about the list that's happened in the first 12 months of my time here, um, well, we are in the business of managing risk and getting good compensation for that risk, proper compensation for that risk. But we have to look, look at it through the longer term lens because we're really trying to build people's retirement incomes. That's all good points. And I think you know, the, the fact you've got that stat from, you know, if you'd invested 50,000 in 2001 is a great example of, of not panicking too much as an investor, unless you're a day trader, of course. But from your point of view as an investor, long-term investor, of course, you, you should think like that. Nonetheless, what we're seeing uh, for a lot of um, people in the markets, well, I mean, globally, uh, not just in the markets, but everywhere, they're dealing with things they haven't really seen before. I mean, when's the last time that we in the Western world really have had to worry that much about um, energy security, or more importantly, food security, I suppose. Um, and yet we're beginning to have to a bit. Um, how are you adapting or thinking about how to change how you think about investing, given that some of the pressures we're seeing are, if not unusual or unheard of, certainly haven't been seen for quite some time. Inflation, many years, interest rate increases for a decade or more for most people in the Western world, at least. 
is this changing how you're thinking about what you're doing for the next two or three years, despite what you're saying about, about longer term investing? Yeah, I, I think your point about, for example, I, I was in a meeting earlier this week with people who weren't born when inflation was at the levels it is now, like literally were not born at that level of inflation. And so that's very um, challenging. Uh, perhaps the most most powerful message is um, humility. Um, if, if we haven't lived through it for a very long time, then what are we drawing on? We're drawing on charts and history and record, but but you need to approach these things with humility, um, even as, as recently as today. If you, if you look, there's a, there's a couple of charts emerging um, from the US, um, one about ha housing, um, a New York um, manufacturing um, chart. Both of them look like things are starting to slow quite rapidly. And there's a couple of other strong signs out of, out of, out of, out of Europe as well. But no, look, inflation's running three times target. And so you, we, we take the view that you need to see some pretty strong signals over a sustained period to say that it's it's dealt with. There, there are those who are drifting out into the market now thinking, well, maybe the beast has been slain. Um, that's possible. That's that's not our view. Our, our, our view is that that um, there's some pretty tough times ahead. And do you think that the, the main way of dealing with that is going to continue to be interest rate increases? Is that what you're saying? Uh, well, well, I think um, I think we have to give equal weight to uh, all of the dimensions of tightening. So we've got to think about QT as well as we've got to think about interest rates. And of course, they have different effects and they impact um, asset prices differently. They affect households differently. So interest rates seem to, they hit Main Street and, and quantitative tightening hits, hits sort of hits Wall Street a little bit more. And we've just got to think about how governments might balance those two things. But we think we're in a tight environment. We think we're in a continually tightening environment. The question now is, what's the rate of that tightening? And is there a pivot around the corner uh, for the Fed and other central banks? That's the sort of thing that we're mostly thinking about. We're mostly thinking that those big issues about the planet and about security, they're going to require multi-dimensional government, private, public funding, a whole lot of things that we haven't had a lot of great experience in, frankly, as a planet. But inflation, we know the tools. We know what people do. Um, it's really a matter of are we stomping on the brakes and crashing the car or are we able to thread the needle and, and sort of extract a, a softer landing? That, that's really what's in our minds. And it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I suppose, for, especially for a lot of your... Um... A lot of your customers that people like like you and me who are just having our money invested on our, on our behalf as individuals, especially if we have mortgages, we're looking at what's going on thinking, well, the line seems to be let's battle inflation by creating more inflation by putting up interest rates, which doesn't seem very helpful for the, the, the man or woman on the street, right? just looking at their, their mortgages and their pension funds. So well, well, if you, if, I'm guessing if, that's if you, probably flowing through into the way they're dealing with you as well, isn't it? They're probably calling you up. Oh, that's, that that, that, that's true. And, and you see some of, some of the people participating today might consider themselves to be 100% investors, but most people are humans first and investors second. And so you've got to just think about all of the dimensions. So, so people are worried about job shortages across the across the planet. We're worried about supply chain problems. People are worried that they're not their pays aren't rising fast enough to cope with inflation. Retirees are worried. You you think the risk free rate's rising, so maybe there's a little bit in that for them. But but if your cost of living's exploding and you're not working anymore and returns are down a little bit, so yes, Anthony, we we try and think about the member as as the whole person. It's all their inputs and all their outputs, their entire experience, 
and and that adds extra complexity because as you say they markets correct and they swamp our call center and they deal with our on the app um people are worried about their future they ring us during the gfc we had the, the one of the largest numbers of calls were people saying am i going to lose my house now that didn't have anything to do with us but what 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 had been reported in the media was markets are down and house prices are going to collapse and people say oh i better ring my super fund uh pension fund um in that case so it it it, it is an extra something we need to think about very carefully but our primary job our only job is to make people the most risk adjusted money post tax and post fees and then explain to them how that fits into their household balance sheet right are you spending a lot more time i say you, you as a company spending a lot more time on the app and on on the phone with clients this oh, year versus oh, yeah. say last year i mean you've yeah, COVID, i mean you've had a series of events over the past three years yeah, i mean Absolutely, it's it, it's 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 been a really tough time for for people. So there's the health issues, and then I'm now. Do I lose my job? Am I allowed to work? My contributions to my pension are going to drop off because I'm not working. Those sort of things, as well as that, you know, pretty savage correction. Um, luckily, um, was a V that time. Um, lots of calls then. People worry about those things. So yes, we've been. Um, you know, this organisation has 2.7 million members. But we had about 60 million interactions in the last 12 months from members on, on the app and in other ways. Um, phone calls to the call centre up about three times in the midst of those. That, 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 that June correction, people are revisiting that June number maybe now, but, but at the time, people were um, hammering us, frankly. And rightly so, they um, were looking for reassurance. When you're looking for reassurance, I mean, or when you're looking to give it, are there, sort of, aside from the more obvious economic data you, you've already mentioned are there other things you look for to say look this is maybe where there is a turning point these are some of the yeah. whether softer numbers or have you got your own sort of esoteric ways of looking at things think, you know this is where markets turn that, that maybe don't get factored into things by the regular yeah. economists yeah yes i think there are a few of those and, and I, the, one of the best pieces of information um i was shared was if everybody's watching the fed watch what the fed's watching and it's a, it's a really interesting kind of loop to say, well, we're watching what they're going to do. Well, what are they looking at? Well, it seems very clear to us that they're looking at vacancies per job, which are running at record highs, two, two to one in the US and slightly less in Australia and slightly less in the UK, but still very, very significant. And of course, they're looking at household consumption. A couple of the numbers we, we, we dig deeper into is how much disposable income do households have? How much of that old COVID injection is still there? Where are they against their mortgages? These, because really a major correction is usually people run out of money, right? And whoever it is that runs out of money, whether it's the consumer or, or businesses. But if you look at earnings, business earnings look pretty good. Household budgets look, you know, their they're, they're balance, balances look pretty good inside their households. But what we're looking for is signs that people are finding it harder. And, and, and that'll be sort of the, we think the, best indication that there'll be a real economy change. And, and it is kind of difficult because you and I are consciously considering, are, are we on the brink of something bad happening when unemployment is at ridiculous, uncharacteristically low levels? And so normally recessions are very employment related and very painful for individuals. But at the moment, maybe it's the hangover of the COVID injection of monetary and fiscal loosening and injections of money maybe it's that um but we, we so we're really looking at households and and business earnings nothing special about that but trying to look inside that to say 
What's the next indication of that? Is there anything you're particularly worried about? Is there one or two things you think that this is really going to tip us over or this is the event or this is the number that I'm going to be most worried about? Yeah, well, there, there are some numbers that we worry about that I don't intend to share, um, but we, there are some particular numbers that we look at very, very carefully to use as triggers and monitors that things might be going either in favour of our hypothesis and, and our central thesis or, 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 or against it. Um, but I, I think it's we're really all just watching inflation and all the things that that's inflation is the main and could be the only game, um, and of course the the policy settings that respond to it. Hey, well, we may well come back to a couple more questions as they come in from the audience. By all, by all means, please do keep throwing those questions in, uh, guys. Those who are watching, um, I just want to sort of turn a bit more to um, Oz Super's strategy now. Now. But for those abroad who may not know, and I can't believe these people even exist, who may not know quite how um, superannuation funds work in Australia, you're the biggest. You've got about 260 Australian billion Australian dollars, which is 180 yes. billion US dollars in assets under management. I think the overall system of superannuation funds has about 3.4 trillion Aussie dollars, uh, which, according to the OECD, makes it the fifth largest such pool of capital on the planet. So that's pretty hefty. Within Australia, though, that makes you very, very big, um, both as, as, as Australia's super, but also as an industry. And there are concerns about how that may distort the market, especially the stock market, given how relatively small it is compared to um, the industry. And I was just looking, I think yesterday it came out that um, Ossupra has just up, upped its stake, just by a little bit, but to 15, 15.5% in a basically a mining supplier company, Orica. Yeah. It's a $7 billion Aussie dollar, com- billion Aussie, uh, dollar company, that's something that, that you and some of your, your, your peers can easily do, right? 10% of that is not a lot of money. Also, you were involved in um, the take private of Sydney Airport, along with several other uh, pension funds, super funds. How, how much do you consider how, whether the size of the industry relative to the Australian market is a problem? Uh, well, um, every problem is an opportunity, Anthony. And um, the way <laughs> we think about it is we are too big for Australia. So there's no question about that. More of our assets are managed outside Australia than they are inside. Six or seven of every ten of, of every ten new dollars will be managed offshore, and and we have a tremendous office in in London with about seventy people there now, and on a way to sort of 150 or perhaps 200. A, a terrific office in in New York with a fo- particular focus on on private equity, but also um, private credit. And so, yes, it's absolutely the case that unless we changed our model, uh, we would end up having a bit of a, a performance drag and or a diversification complexity, frankly. And so yeah, we're very determined uh, to, we, we consider ourselves a global investor with domestic beneficiaries. The name's Australian Super because we are investing for members of the fund in Australia, but, um, very um, experienced and and enthusiastic global investors in 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 various markets and 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 really this is we're ten years into this process of having internalised our asset management process and now much more rapidly globalising that it is true we were uh, far too uh, Melbourne centric and and Australian orientated but but we're genuinely and in all of our fibres taking the view that we are a global investor for for domestic beneficiaries and and hence the New York office, the London office. We have a presence in Beijing with two and a half people there. 
uh, and that's that's the beginning really of 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 the expansion. And I think it might be useful for for your um, uh, listeners and and those watching um, to to just notice one difference. Most of the global pension funds are defined benefit plans, many of them in decline, and many of them with deep uh, government connections and relationships. That's not our case at all. So we are a defined contribution plan, which has enormous advantages and, and agility uh, that comes with that as an investor. And uh, it's a private sector, uh, privately owned uh, entity through a trust structure. So some of your the people participating today might think, well, what about the Canadian eight or what about some of the big European plans? Australian super is, is fundamentally different, and indeed the Australian system is that it was deliberately defined contribution, and and it's 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 the private provision of 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 pension, and and that does lend itself because of strong inflows, for example, to to be able to be comfortably overweight unlisted and and infrastructure, for example, and that that's quite a dis distinction with many of the large funds that that your your listeners would be uh, familiar mm. with. Yeah, that's true. I mean, just uh, again, I suppose as, as background, I think at the moment the, the level is what everyone, uh, everyone's employer has to uh, contribute ten and a half percent. I think it currently right. is of, of salary um, or of annual pay, and that's going up every year to to it hits twelve percent. So you yeah, have a wonderfully correct. solid pool of capital coming in every year. Yes, that's utterly true. And the other advantage that this fund has is that we're rapidly growing market share as well. So you mentioned the in Australian dollars, we're at $260 billion in members' assets, but we've also been running at around net $20 billion a year in, in inflows, and this year nearly 40 because of some mergers. So, so we have that advantage that there's a there's a mandated growth in contributions, but people have choice as well. So we need to win the market share battle, but all the indications are that, you know, we'll have a lot more capital to deploy. And in, in five years' time, uh, you know, we'll be a 350 billion US uh, organisation, 500 uh, thereabouts in Australian dollars. And that means, you know, much more exposure in New York to private equity, uh, much more exposure to infrastructure, perhaps twice or three times our current settings, double the size of the global equities um, exposure. So, so the fund is is rapidly growing, and 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 that we need to deploy that capital to uh, to manage our exposures to increase members' retirement benefits. Yeah, and at the moment, I mean, I, at the moment I, I look at you and I see a, a very big Australia company when we're talking about assets under management. If I then translate that to the international world, I see uh, an assets under management that is in that, that what many describe as an uncomfortable ground globally, at least between. A wonderful niche and a really big, powerful, powerfully sized asset manager. And I think that there are there are pros and cons to both. Don't get me wrong; it's very difficult sometimes for a very big asset manager to find a way to, to increase returns very easily. Um, but you are going to be relatively small on the international stage. It's, yeah, so, that's so what growing funds and mergers are about to make sure that that bulks up. Yeah, so Anthony, I think your your point's right. I, I, you, Almost the worst place ever to be in life is one or is in between. You need to be one one thing or the other, and we've we've absolutely nailed our, our, ourselves to the the mast of scale because size and scale and skill delivers benefits for members. So there's no doubt about that. Uh, yes, we we are uh, we have um, what I describe as ambitious growth uh, um, targets. 
because we want to get to global scale at, at with some some speed. But I would point to a couple of things in particular. We have been well suited to some of the times. So we've done a brilliant uh, redevelopment of the King's Cross estate, which was just perfectly suited to us by size and also to the, the other partners in that in that um, um, reconstruction and redevelopment. And, and also true of Canada Water, which is very important redevelopment that we're a significant um, participant in. But when I think about global scale, uh, we'll be a, today we would be a mid-size global investor on the low side. Where do we want to be? We want to be materially larger than that. And 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 our long run view is that within a decade we'll 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 be able to be a one trillion dollar Australian dollar organisation, and and that will give us size and scale, provided we um, use all of our disciplines and and keep all of our smarts. Uh, and use what and do what we're really good at. We're, we're really good at infrastructure. We're, we're we're really good at property redevelopment. We're really good at placemaking. Um, we're terrific at working with GPs on on private equity. Like we've just got to stick to what we we know really well. Um, but yes, we're 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 unashamedly in the business of scale, and that'll mean we de- need to deploy capital, and especially it will mean we need to employ deeply skillful elite talent in all of those markets. Right. Is, is that an issue for you when you first go into a market? It must be. I mean, you mentioned your um, London office, which I think you've grown quite well over the past five or six years. New York is just being set up. You're going to be pretty, relative, well, relatively speaking, unknown there. How do you get the talent? Yes. It's a well, pretty well, hard market for talent at the moment. In, in general, yes, it is. it is. Well, actually, the world is a hard ta- market for talent just generally. So all those global supply chains and all those pressures People are finding it hard to find anyone for any jobs. That's one global phenomenon I, I note. But in, but in our case, we're spending a lot of time thinking about our EVP. And, and the things that work against us are the things you mentioned. Well, we're relatively new kids on the block and we're not as big as everybody else. The things that work for us are that we are a for-purpose organisation and that everybody can see that this is about the beneficiaries. The second is that the size and scale of the organ, the trajectory of the organisation is is very exciting to people. So you get exposure, you have broader remit than you otherwise would, um, perhaps in some of those uh, more established organisations. And and the third thing that I, I, I mentioned because it's pretty important to investors, because we have a whole part of the organisation which is designed to attract and keep members and to attract inflows. If you're an investor at Australian Super you only have one thing to do, which is to invest, to make people the most money risk-adjusted post-tax and post-fees. You don't need to sell. You don't need to do investor relations. You don't need to secure inflows. You don't need to chase mandates. And and the combination of a for-purpose organisation that is commercially very successful and one that doesn't require you to do anything other than to be an elite investor, we're finding that mixture is that combination is is very attractive to certainly the type of people we want to attract. Right. No, I, I can certainly say some of that. That's that's an intriguing way of putting it. Something that you know you can you can stick to your knitting, as it were, um, or Correct. what you really want to do, rather than having to. Well, if you're a great investor, we want you to work here, but you, and we won't ask you to do anything other than be a great investor. Yeah. Um, now you, you sort of alluded to, to mergers a couple of times. Most of what I've been seeing down here, of course, with super funds is super funds merging with super funds. Uh, you've done a couple recently. There's been a couple of deals among your competitors recently which have made them much bigger. So you've got like, a couple that are 
I wouldn't quite say knocking on your doors as, uh, assets under management wise, but certainly bigger than they were. Um, yes. Is that the only kind of merger that that super funds can do? Would you be able to buy something abroad if you wanted to bulk up more quickly, or because you're not publicly traded? Um, I assume you've got various things you can and can't do. But how does that work? Well, they're very important questions. One thing I would just observe is that we think it's a good thing that the industry is consolidating because we think we'll end up with more, sorry, smaller but bigger and better funds. So we think as a, for a, as a system point of view, that makes good sense. And if you look at the Maple 8, you know, perhaps you'll end up with the Aussie 8 or the Aussie Top 10, and, and we think that's a good outcome for, for consumers. Um, but, but in terms of scale... We we don't want to do anything that introduces additional op risk or complexity, and and so and we thinking about that idea of sticking to our knitting, we've 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 earned the ability to be very disciplined about that, and so we're going to be very disciplined about that. There's been a host of potential acquisition opportunities or merger opportunities that we've respectfully declined because they would have seen us take on complexity or op risk or or bent our model uh, too too far to an, maybe even a, a margin or a cost base that we wouldn't have been able to sustain. So we're being very particular about it. We can see our pathway to quite continuing rapid growth to the sort of scale uh, we want. We think the industry will continue to consolidate. And they're all tailwinds uh, for us. But but our board has very, very clearly said our business here is to help members save more money, earn more money, protect their assets better so they can have a better retirement. And we think that's best done if we don't become a bank and we don't become an insurance company and we don't become an, a digital service company. They're all very important, but we're going to be a superannuation company. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's a question from the audience here on... Um, on what happens as you get bigger, which I think I, I sort of kind of sort of half implied when saying their course is a problem to being a very big firm. But the question here is, um, what are you doing to make sure as you get bigger that you avoid a performance track? Uh, is there anything you have to change yeah. to do that? Yeah, I think it's a tremendously important question because what, what got you to here won't get you to there. Uh, and, and I would say to the person who asked the question, deliberately and constantly evolving the, the model. So, so when, when we encountered capacity constraints and, and an inability to deal with margins, then, then we internalised. Uh, and when, when, when we saw the opportunity, uh, we've been big investors in, in unlisted assets. That's another opportunity. Then we go global. Uh, then we think about what's passive and what's active. And then we think about the mix. Of the, so, so I think the, the primary answer is as you grow, you must change the model and that's what we've been doing. And so we're not, what we were as a $100 billion fund will not cut it as a $1 trillion fund. Right. And, and the question that was asked is exactly the one we're putting our mind to because uh, we've, we've, we've spent the organisational's lifetime being really good at helping people save and earn money and we're pursuing size and scale uh, to make sure we continue to do that. You, you've, you've mentioned this a few times that the, the fact you're getting more into infrastructure, you, you, you like infrastructure, but and you're getting into uh, non, non public assets, non publicly traded assets. And you also referenced the, the Maple Lake, the Canadian funds. A lot of what you're doing and, and what some of the other super funds are doing, and I, and I mentioned the Sydney Airport deal um, from last year, the 17 billion US dollar Sydney Airport deal. There's a lot of that going on. So, are you among the, the, the bigger super funds, are you all basically trying to? 
uh, to follow the lead of, of some of the Canadian funds like CDPU and Ontario Teachers in how they've, they've looked at that as well. I mean, it seems like you are from what you just said, but let's dig into that a little bit more. Sure. So um, a few things. Um, we've definitely and actively gone to look at the organisations that are bigger and more mature than us to learn more rapidly. So that's just an unashamed in 2016 and 17, all of those funds were extremely generous uh, with us, a number of the US funds as well and the European funds. And we said, we think we're on this trajectory. What would you say? And we we use CM benchmarking as one of the organisations, but also the funds themselves. Have, they've been incredibly generous. Um, and, and we are competitors for talent and competitors for assets and sometimes co-investors for assets as well. So it's, I'm very drawn to this idea of co-opetition. Um, that there's some things that you don't need to compete about and they're just better for the whole world and, and for markets and for the beneficiaries and some things you have to viciously compete about um, and talent and, and deals are, are, are part of those. So it is definitely the case that we set out uh, to learn rapidly from people. And in my experience is in, in taking on this job 12 months ago, I think I, I did speak with each of the chief executives of each of the Canadian funds, all of them just really generous with their time and tremendously bright uh, we did the same with almost all of the key European funds. Again, very generous, very happy to teach us what they what they'd learnt and and to help us get there more more rapidly. So uh, it's 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 a really um, that part of the industry is is, is delightful. Uh, when it comes to unlisted assets, though, they're just very well matched to the liabilities of pension funds, right? So there's there's a little bit of there's a little bit of inflation protection in there. We've got the advantage, a series of advantages in terms of we've got the ability to extract an illiquidity premium. Um, they're pretty stable. They're well matched. So, so if you just take this back to fundamentals, what we're trying to do is, is get proper compensation for the risk that we're taking, which means you've got to think about where's the risk-free rate? What's the risk in this in, in, that you're taking here on, on this investment? And, and what's the full round cost? Uh, of illiquidity and we've got some illiquidity advantages and so that does bring in um so we've got liquidity advantages which allow us to extract some of those illiquidity premia and and that 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 confirms that they're they're really well suited to us and there's another question from um the uh, audience here as well in in terms of looking at uh, these unlisted assets and especially with economic headwinds now you know, how do you how do you deal with marking down those assets? We've seen a few good examples. I'm not sure they're quite the ones you're going to go after. One of the ones uh, I saw recently was Klarna, the uh, the um, buy now pay later uh, company up in I think up in the, uh, the um, Sweden or, or certainly up in Northern Europe. Um, those are probably not the kind of things you're taking private or buying in the private markets. But nonetheless, you know, Sydney Airport's valuation is one that. Um, you know, certainly suffered a lot, unsurprisingly, because of COVID. You're going to have other issues with infrastructure um, uh, assets that you buy or, or other non-public mm -hmm. assets. How do you deal with that? And this one, this question asks, um, if they're not marked down properly, is there a risk that wealth is transferred from working members to retirees? Ah, I, I think your question, the question has got the perfect question, spot-on question. We, we, we see the issue of valuation as, as fundamentally important uh, through the lens of member equity. So you've got to make sure that approaching it from a willing buyer, willing seller point of view, that no member is getting an advantage at the expense of another and as best you can, that you've got it marked um, not 
I'm not suggesting this is simple, but we do have and have built really robust methods and processes. And actually the COVID um, period really taught us a great deal about, about that um, in terms of the valuation process, the crediting rate process, and making sure that you've got um, sufficient tension in that process, right? So you've got to have the asset class team's got a view about the asset. And but if you're inside the deal, you've got your own bias towards towards that deal. And then you've got the independent valuer and there's a limited number of independent valuers and we use a ro proper rotation and what have you. But what we built inside was a really robust valuations capability and then sitting over the top of that evaluations committee. And so we've we've never been reluctant to mark things down when it was warranted or up when it's warranted because we want to make sure we, we, we as very best we can, we meet that internal member equity question because it might not be as obvious to, to some of the people participating in this, in this call, but members can make an investment switch. So we've got to make sure that that's happening at, at the right terms between members. Members can leave the fund and join another fund. So we've got to make sure that's happening. And, for, and sometimes um, there's a mismatch between what the member wants to do and what you can get away in the market. Um, and that's obviously the case in, in relation to in, in, uh, unlisted assets and infrastructure. So the question asked is a really important one. It's one that we have very robust processes that brings together the asset class plus the independent valuer plus the separate valuation expertise and then crunches that through a governance process. So, um, yeah, we we thought our processes were okay and pretty good actually until in 2020 we had a really good mob come through and help us and say, well, what's, what's world-class on this and had some good assistance from our auditors as well. But I feel very confident about um, the strength, the robustness of our process. And it's it's always in our interest to make sure that things are on our books as as close as possible as as, as what would a listed value be? Yeah. Now let's let's um, let's switch on to sustainability, climate change, environmental, social, governance issues. Uh, lots of different monikers for them. Um, but it's a it's a good question here actually from um, the audience again, which kind of ties back to the economic issues. Um, how can you ensure that the focus on sustainability in the climate crisis doesn't slip, given economic problems? I'd also add to that. I think we've also seen some. Um, some pushback against um, dealing with climate issues from certain sections of certain parts of certain countries. Uh, I'm not sure how much of an impact that's having on investment, but it's certainly getting a lot of noise in the papers. So, so I, I think it's a good question from the person who sent that in. Um, but the way I can be sure of that is that we don't think of ESG as separate from the valuation process. So it's not a it's not a nice to have. It's not a it's not an overlay. Uh, it's it's central to the process of establishing the quality of the asset and the valuation of the asset, and so if just if you just take that back just a, a, a step, if if we're looking to acquire something, what, what do you want to do? You you want to make sure that that business knows how to make money, and you want to make sure that, that business has a really good leadership team with skills and capabilities, and that and that it's a quality operation. Well, that's that's you've got to put your mind to that and that's that's got to do with ESG. And then you've got to think about how much you're paying for it and what's what's the valuation. And you can't do a valuation without thinking about the E and the S and the G as well because not only what's the quality of what you're getting, what's the price you're paying all feeds into the valuation and what how valuable is it going to be in six months' time and how valuable is it going to be in three years' time and in 10 years' time because we are, as an investor, trying to extract free cash flow 
to meet the risk that we're taking. And so if anybody thinks that they can do that with just stepping in or stepping out of ESG or taking it as a fashion or thinking, oh, things are tough at the moment, so I'll turn a blind eye to something. Well, not, that's, nothing could be truer, uh, further from the truth. The, the, the reality is you need to think about quality and price when you're valuing these things. And that's why our view is the ESG part is, is, is integrated into acquisition, into asset management and into disposal. It is different when you're in the asset ownership phase because the first bit is, would I buy this at this price knowing everything I know about the risk and the quality and the opportunity? And would I sell this at this price knowing everything I know about the risk and the opportunity? But in the middle, if I then having ch chosen to buy it, then we take our stewardship really seriously and push companies about the credibility of their plans for net zero, the credibility of their strategic plans, the credibility of their succession plans to ensure that we're getting, we're going to meet our investment case and we're getting full value for, for the investment that we made at the start. So I think it's a worthwhile question because I've heard people say, oh, well, there's global turmoil. Let's just not worry about net zero. Well, that sounds to me to be a ridiculous proposition. Um, mm -hmm. I've heard people say, oh, we won't put any pressure on at the moment because things are tough. Well, that's exactly when you put the pressure on because what we're talking about is the long-term value and value creation of, of a security. So, that, I mean, and that, that's, I think that probably solves the, the, the follow-on I had on that, which was a lot of what you're saying, I think, works very well for a company which you have bought outright. It does, though, for a company where you'll say you're a 5% holder, 3% holder, that would have, I can see companies saying, you know what, we've got to cut back on our expenditure and guess what that means? That carbon emissions plan we have is going to be pushed back a year or, you know what, we we're going to take less fresh water uh, than we uh, than we want than, than last year, but we're going to have to put that on hold because it's too expensive. We've got other things we've got to do. Is that where you get involved and say, guys, we've got to push back on this as, as one of your shareholders because? Sure. Well, we take the stewardship part and voting shares very, very seriously. But I'll, I just... To, talk about one reality uh, we we our principles are universal our expectations are universal but what we what we can expect to get from that is different depending on the point you made if we own a little or we own a lot or we own the lot right so it's definitely the case that our ownership footprint brings more responsibilities but also more opportunities um but i yes if 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 we if we're people like us being on the register because we take a very long-term view and we're patient capital and we back the management to do the right thing. And so people like us being on their register, but if we're on the register, we're not just passive about that. We, we take an active interest because we are completely convinced that we're going to get to net zero by 2050 and probably much quicker. And the organisations that do that well across this scope one, two, and three, they'll be the winners. And we want to be invested in winners to make more money and not invested in losers to lose money. Right. Now, on, on the whole, I say the whole ESG debate, that the issue that's come up recently, I think Elon Musk at Tesla has been particularly keen to belittle the whole idea of ESG investing. And frankly, I, I kind of somewhat agree with him. ESG investing has always been a, a tricky term for me. I rather like the better the idea that you fold those into your regular investing. It's part of what you should do. But nonetheless, he's pointed out, you know, that look at what we've done with environmental issues. And I can't believe we're not in X, Y, Z indices. The problem with Tesla, and I'm not expecting you to come back on Tesla necessarily, but the problem with Tesla, as I see it, is that the E is usually very good, although they do, uh, seeing Musk laugh off water scarcity issues in Berlin last year, 
was not particularly smart of him, and he got a bit of a pushback from shareholders recently. Um, but generally, E, yes, we can agree, pretty good. On the S, there's been some issues at the factories, and on the G, having covered Tesla for years, the governance side of Tesla has always been a little bit wanting. How, when you're looking at ESG as, a, as an investor, one of many investors in a company, do you weigh up those three different pockets? And I appreciate it's not the only three things you're looking at. Yeah. If you're thinking about sustainability, that's what we've got. That's a that's a tricky one to push through. Yeah, but, but we don't say E versus S versus G. Right? So if you think about the lens I tried to bring to it, which is what's the quality of the asset and what's the valuation of the asset, it needs to be across all three of those. Uh, incidentally, I found out today that a Tesla takes 20, 50 kilograms of nickel, right? So if you're if you if you if you're producing a Tesla, you need to understand your entire global uh, supply chain. So it's impossible. It doesn't can't just be about environment. I, I was a little bit frustrated by the Economist, which I normally love reading, but when they said oh, it should only be about emissions, how can it only be about emissions? You still exist in a society. Somebody's got to dig up that nickel. Somebody's got to buy that car. Somebody's got to be confident that the people who are running that enterprise, and I'm not talking about that particular stock in any way, if anybody was yeah. accidentally thinking I was, but none of us can operate, even there's such a thing as externalities in economics, you can't operate absent thinking about governance and thinking about social and the social license and the environment and all the rest. So, so no, I have heard that discussion, E versus S versus G. We don't take that view. We say, would we, would we or wouldn't we buy this company based on the quality of it? And would we or wouldn't we buy it at this price based on the price and based on the, lead, the leadership and the management of it? That's how, that's how we think about the ESG valuation part of it. Now, um, we're running uh, close to time here. Just one more question on, on that. And it's, it's unfortunately rather a big one, but I'll see if I can, I can squeeze it in. Um, what, do we, what should we be expecting? What do you as an investor expect from governments? I'm, I'm thinking in some mm. respects, it's about providing the pathway, providing surety of what's going to happen. So you know, investors are, are willing to put money to work for a while. But also, it's, you know, if I look at last week's um, bill out of the US, the weirdly named Inflation Reduction Bill, which is mostly about climate, there's a lot of stuff in there like tying, um, uh, tying production of or tying subsidies um, for sustainable products to made in America products, which makes perfect economic sense in many respects, especially uh, for elected politicians, but also could have skewed consequences. And again, down here at the weekend, one of the Australia's ministers, energy ministers, was saying, look, we could look at maybe think about restricting how much lithium gets sent abroad. I mean, I, I think behind that is a let's make lithium uh, and other metals a, a great way of expanding the economy. And I think that that's fine, but they both kind of sort of, to me, raise this specter of climate nationalism coming out of governments, yeah. which yeah. rather worries me. How does that fit into what you want to see from, from governments? Well, first of all, we're free marketeers and we believe in the free flow of trade and services, and we think that's the best way for prosperity and, and peace. The second thing is governments have a role in setting stable policy, long-run setting policy stables. What was I saying then? Setting long-term yeah. stable policies. That's what I was trying to say. And that's yeah. possibly the most important thing they can do. But if I also think about, say, the Biden administration, the Infrastructure Act, the, the Chips and Science, um, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, all three of those sort of indicate that government looks like it's more likely to start investing and spending. And that's good because those things need a government response. So, Anthony, my, my response would be 
Having long-run stable policy settings is the most important thing government can do. And then along the way, they could make investments or also take some of the risk to make it more possible that other participants will also co-invest or invest somewhere in the life cycle. I think I've, I've answered that as quickly as I could. Uh, that's that's exceptionally fantastically quickly done. Um, of course, we could go on for another, uh, well, uh, rest of the week probably about a lot of this, but we do have to wrap up now. Um, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a fantastic uh, journey to understand uh, how you think about everything from uh, from expansion to markets to, to climate. Um, so let me thank you again. Uh, and then to everyone else, to our, our viewers, thank you for all of your questions. I didn't get to all of them, but I hope I got uh, a lot of the main ones in. Um, we have more uh, Reuters newsmakers coming up in the next few weeks, not least uh, AstraZeneca Chief Executive Pascal Sorio, uh, Philippine Central Bank Governor Felipe Medalla, and others. Please keep an eye on Reuters social media feeds uh, and Refinitiv for more details. And with that, Paul Schroeder, uh, CEO of Australian Super, thanks so much again for coming on. Thanks, Anthony. That's it for this edition of The Exchange. Thanks to our producer, Thomas Schum, and thanks to you for tuning in. You can find this and our sister show, The Views Room, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcast kicks. And please do check out our columns every day at breakingviews.com. Until next time. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.